Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth Episode 14 Alexius Welcome back. Last time we talked about the reign of the Emperor Basil II, the last great ruler of the extraordinary Macedonian dynasty. At his death, the empire was the largest and strongest state in Europe, dominating either militarily or culturally all of its neighbors. Its borders stretched from Italy in the west to Armenia in the east, from the sun-baked deserts of Syria and Lebanon in the south to the cold of the Ukraine in the north. Its army was the finest of the day, considered invincible by its enemies, always on the move and capable of striking like lightning. Its capital city glittered in unrivaled splendor and was renowned as far away as Scandinavia, where people referred to it simply as the city. But rather than ushering in an age of unrivaled splendor and power, Basil II was instead the last of the great soldier emperors, and at his death, the empire began a precipitous decline. Barely 76 years later, when a young 24-year-old general named Alexius Komnenus stepped into the Hagia Sophia for a somewhat subdued coronation, it was to take the reins of a state which was both internally and externally exhausted. Its armies were shattered, its peoples were disunited, the government was paralyzed with inefficiency and intrigue, and much of its territory, both in Europe and Asia, had fallen away. Many who watched the coronation ceremony must have done so without much enthusiasm or optimism, and cannot have helped but wonder how it could have come to this. A large part of the answer was to be found in a battle that had taken place ten years earlier near the small town of Manzikert in Asia Minor. Thanks to a series of foolish rulers and a poisonous court, the weak emperors who followed Basil II had been unable to see beyond the narrow walls of the palace and had let the once invincible army decay to the point of incompetence. It was this army, made up in large part of mercenaries and controlled by the powerful nobles, that the Emperor Romanus IV Diogenes had taken in 1071 to the town of Manzikert to confront the growing power of the Seljuk Turks. Betrayed both by his commanders and by the unreliable nature of mercenaries, Romanus saw his army annihilated and was himself captured. Such a defeat was bad enough, dispelling as it did the myth of the invincible Byzantine army, but it didn't have to become the shattering disaster that it did. The Turks had won a battle, but were distracted by a war against a rival Islamic power in Egypt, and could have been contained by a competent figure on the throne. Instead, the weak emperors who followed Romanus, lost in their petty court struggles, didn't lift a finger as the Seljuks spread over 30,000 miles and completely overran Asia Minor. Nothing seemed able to distract the increasingly myopic emperors from their petty squabbles. As the borders collapsed, they made war on rival factions, even at times allying themselves with the very enemies who were invading their territory. In 1078, Michael VII, the incompetent emperor of the moment, in the face of the Turkish advance, chose to officially recognize their hold on Asia Minor in return for help against a renegade mercenary. To add to this blindingly inept maneuver, he then sent Alexius, his ablest general, away to the east to deal with the same situation. The moment the general was gone, a civil war erupted, and Michael, unable even to control the rioting citizens of Constantinople, abdicated in favor of a 78-year-old general named Nicephorus. The situation desperately called for a man of action, and the new emperor was a general, but unfortunately he had used what energy he had left on his successful bid for the throne. Once there, rapidly sinking into debauchery and senility, he found himself completely unable to deal with the problems he had inherited, and only added to the chaos. Having usurped the throne, the most pressing problem as he saw it was the threat of pretenders. 
Alexius, the one competent general in his pay, was sent time and time again to stamp out the numerous revolts that kept popping up. While he was outmaneuvering the imperial enemies, the emperor was busy making himself thoroughly unpopular. Nearing 80, he married Maria, the beautiful 29-year-old wife of Michael, the emperor he had just deposed. This was bad enough, especially since her former husband was very much alive, but Nicephorus made it worse by unnecessarily forcing her daughter-in-law into a convent. The girl's father, the brilliant Norman adventurer Robert Giscard, on the lookout for just such a pretext, immediately made plans for an invasion. By this time, Nicephorus was spending most of his time inside the palace. His attempts to buy popularity had only further emptied an already empty treasury, and the constant revolts in the east, where each side had made expansive promises to the Turks in exchange for support, had left most of Asia Minor in their hands. Each day, it seemed, brought news of fresh pretenders, and the old emperor could only sit helplessly by and watch as events spiraled out of control. When Alexius returned to the city, expecting to be loaded with honors from a grateful emperor, he found instead a paranoid, barely civil sovereign who hustled him out of the city as quickly as possible to deal with yet another revolt. Alexius, making no secret of his displeasure, went and put down the rebellion, but the die was cast. By now it was clear to everyone that if there was any hope of saving the empire, action had to be taken quickly, and Alexius seemed to be the only man who could do it. As usual, the old emperor was completely oblivious to the danger. His wife, the beautiful empress, charmed by the dashing young general, had adopted him into the royal family. With this semblance of legitimacy, all that was needed now was an excuse to gather an army. Nicephorus, with an almost painful naivety, conveniently obliged by announcing a new campaign against the Turks and naming Alexius to lead it. Managing to avoid his enemies at court, Alexius joined the army where, if you believe his daughter, he was convinced to let them acclaim him emperor. Fortunately, he had thought to bring along a pair of the imperial purple boots, and after a hasty ceremony, he marched on the capital. It wasn't quite that easy to depose an emperor, however. The city had seen its share of invading armies and hopeful pretenders, and yet, in all the time that had passed since its founding, its imposing walls had never been taken by force. As unpopular as the emperor was, he could count on the Varangian guard, who were, to a man, loyal to the throne. Clearly, a siege was out of the question, but for the resourceful Alexius, there were other options. The Varangian guard couldn't man the entire length of the walls, and in fact, most sections were guarded by distinctly less enthusiastic defenders. Somehow Alexius made contact with these men and bribed them to open the gates. Once inside, he met little resistance and marched in triumph to the imperial palace. Nicephorus, by now accepting his fate, abdicated and was allowed to retire to a monastery where he died later that year. Alexius's triumphal entry was impressive, but was spoiled somewhat by the mercenary element in his army. Cheerfully ignoring the fact that there had been no siege, they began looting the moment they were in the city walls. Constantinople must have been a tempting prize. The citizens themselves claimed that they possessed two-thirds of the wealth of the known world, and it took Alexius a full day before he could bring his troops under control. And so it was that three days later, before a chastened congregation, that the patriarch placed the crown upon the head of what must have seemed to many as yet another in a long line of usurpers. Few watching the ceremony would have expected the 24-year-old to remain long on the throne. Indeed, the empire seemed almost beyond saving. The loss of Asia Minor had not only robbed the empire of much of its land, but much of its food and manpower as well. Without the backbone of Anatolian soldiers, the imperial army had been reduced to a collection of mercenaries, 
depriving the empire of an effective army at precisely the moment its enemies realized it was vulnerable. And those enemies seemed to be everywhere. In addition to the Turks, the Balkans were once again in revolt, but most alarming of all, the Norman Robert Giscard was massing his armies. The Normans were very much the success story of the 11th century. They had come a long way from the Viking plunderers who had settled in France in 911. Their first contacts with the Byzantines had been as mercenaries in southern Italy, where they soon became renowned for their fierce fighting ability. By the middle of the century, they had taken on a more permanent attitude, capturing several key fortresses and spreading throughout the Italian peninsula. By 1050, it had become clear that in terms of brute strength and fighting ability, the Normans were without peer. They lacked only an ambitious ruler who could exploit it. Those Normans who had stayed at home found just such a man in William, the illegitimate son of a duke, who invaded England, killed the rightful king, and claimed the throne for himself in 1066. In the south, the even more ambitious Robert Giscard was already on the move. He had arrived in Italy in 1047 with only 35 men, and displaying the cunning which would earn him the nickname of the Fox, he managed to capture a castle in Apulia and then defeat a much larger papal army sent against him. The next 20 years saw one stunning conquest after another as the Fox swept all before him, turning southern Italy into his personal kingdom. By 1071, he had taken Bari, the last Byzantine stronghold in Italy, and by the following year, most of Sicily had fallen as well. With the Pope indebted to him and his enemies cowed, Robert turned his gaze outward, looking for further conquest. It was at this moment that Nicephorus III had decided to force his daughter into a convent. Faced with such a gratuitous insult, and more importantly sensing weakness, Robert set his sights firmly on the Byzantine throne. Alexius had been on that throne for barely a month when the Normans arrived. Robert's timing had, as usual, been exquisite. For all the emperor's military successes, the imperial armies were weak. Full of mercenaries, they had numbers but no strength, and the empty treasury lacked the funds to even pay the troops he had. Nevertheless, Alexius decided to confront his enemies head-on. Leading the armies in person, he headed for the small port town of Durazzo. The resulting battle was to provide an excellent lesson for Alexius. The cream of his army was the Varangian Guard, made up in large part by exiled Anglo-Saxons who had fled the Norman conquest of their country 15 years before. Eager for revenge, they swung their massive double-bladed axes with horrendous effect, stopping the Norman charge in its tracks. But despite their effectiveness, all the flaws of a mercenary-based army were painfully exposed, as the undisciplined rank and file broke ranks to pursue the retreating Normans. The Norman cavalry spun around, catching their pursuers by surprise and massacring them. With the rest of the army scattered, the Varangians were left exposed and isolated and were cut down to a man. Alexius himself barely escaped the debacle, fleeing in disguise amid the ruins of his army. Durazzo fell, but if Robert thought Alexius was beaten, he was soon to learn that there was more to fighting than commanding troops. The Giscard may have been a better general, and the Normans better soldiers, but in one important area, Alexis remained unsurpassed. Long before the first Norman had set sail, Alexius had been plying the diplomatic waters looking for allies. The Holy Roman Emperor proved immediately receptive. As master of northern Italy, he was already wary of the growing power in the south, and Alexius merely pointed out the threat of Robert's overseas expansion. Then, just to make doubly sure, he bribed several Norman barons to start a revolt. Robert's yoke was heavy in the south of Italy, and popular resentment, buttressed by Byzantine gold, 
ensured that it spread like wildfire. Gnashing his teeth in frustration, Robert was on the next ship back to Italy, leaving his son Bohemond in charge to carry on the fight. It took two years for Robert to put his affairs in order, time which he spent stamping out resistance, driving the German emperor from Italy, and carrying out a brutal three-day sack of Rome, during the course of which he managed to set fire to the city and gut most of its ancient buildings. When the 68-year-old fighter returned to Greece, it seemed that nothing could halt the Norman advance. Salvation, as it turned out, however, came within the year. Plague, that common scourge of medieval armies, struck the Norman camp, killing, among others, Robert himself. His death delivered the empire, both east and west, of one of its most formidable enemies, and his successor Bohemond found himself outmatched by Alexius at every turn. Constantly harassing the demoralized Normans, he simultaneously offered them massive bribes to defect. With his army ill and threatening to leave, Bohemond tried to force the issue by cornering the elusive Byzantine army and staking everything on a final battle. Alexius feigned retreat, drew him into an ambush, and then plundered his camp. For Bohemond, it was the final straw. Swallowing his pride, he signed a humiliating surrender and left imperial territory. Alexius had learned a valuable lesson from the Norman invasion. Frontal assaults were no longer an option, since the empire plainly couldn't put an effective army in the field, and success was now dependent on diplomacy and intrigue. Fortunately for the empire, as he would prove again and again, in the 11th century there simply wasn't anyone better. Possessing a motley army barely capable of preserving the borders, and faced with successive invasions from the east and west, he managed to stabilize the frontiers, in some cases without drawing a sword. When the Seljuk Turks allied with the Pechenegs and appeared beneath the walls of Constantinople, Alexius calmly invited the Cumans, the Pechenegs' main rivals, to come in and annihilate them. He then coolly dispatched their Turkish allies by inciting the emir's son-in-law to revolt against him. He had played his hand perfectly. When the Byzantine-backed candidate won, he signed a peace treaty that stabilized the eastern frontier. When a Cuman pretender arose in the Balkans, inspiring a popular revolt, Alexius had an even easier solution. Finding a disgruntled group of Cumans, he bribed them to have the pretender assassinated. Without his presence, the revolt was pointless and simply melted away. The message to Byzantium's neighbors was clear. Invade the empire at your peril, and leave no enemies in your wake for Alexius to exploit. After 15 years of tireless effort, the long dark night seemed at last to be over. The empire was on a more solid footing, and although the army was still only a shadow of its former self, he was slowly rebuilding it. The Normans, Pechenegs, and Cumans had been driven out and defeated, and in the east the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum was preoccupied with a civil war and appeared at last to be vulnerable. It was just the opportunity he was looking for. Perhaps now was the time to take the offensive and reclaim the empire's lost territory. Alexius, however, never had a chance. Whatever plans he had laid were completely upset by the arrival in Constantinople of a vast, shambling army. The First Crusade had arrived. The wheels of this event had been set in motion 42 years before, in 1054, when the Pope and Patriarch had excommunicated each other, permanently rupturing the churches in what came to be called the Great Schism. Each successive Pope had in turn excommunicated each Emperor, and the Emperors had retaliated by closing all the Latin churches in the capital. By the time Alexius came to the throne, cooler heads had begun to prevail. As always looking for possible allies, he first tried to repair relations with the Pope during the Norman invasion, 
hoping that a liberal amount of gifts would detach papal support from Giscard. His failure was mainly due to the intractable pontiff, but by 1088 a new pope, Urban II, had been elevated to the throne. A man of considerable diplomatic flexibility and in need of allies himself, Urban's first act was to lift the excommunication, and Alexius quickly reopened the Latin churches in response. In the east, the situation had stabilized somewhat, but Alexius still didn't have the troops to go on the offensive. Realizing that the warming papal relations were the key to his manpower shortage, he wrote to the Pope, asking for some mercenaries to aid him in his fight against the Turks. The letter, one of the most fateful in Western history, reached Urban in the summer of 1095. The Byzantines had long considered themselves the universal Christian empire, and as such they were the leaders of the universal church. With the Great Schism, however, the West had rejected that claim, and the implications were clear. The supreme spiritual authority was the Pope, not the Emperor, and as such the allegiance of all who responded to the Pope's call was to Christendom and the Pope, not to the Byzantine Emperor. By appealing to the Pope, Alexius had given Urban the perfect opportunity to push his vision and extend his influence to the East. It was not an opportunity he was prepared to miss. Urban called the Great Council of the Church to meet at Claremont, and there, in the first days of November, he gave what was undoubtedly the single most effective speech ever heard in Europe. Laying down the bold new vision of the reformed papacy, he called on Western Christendom to stop killing each other and to take up arms to defend their Eastern brethren. Where Alexius had wanted only a few hundred mercenaries, Urban called for whole armies. But there was no mention of the emperor, or even the empire, the object was not the defense of Constantinople, but the capture of Jerusalem. The Turks had taken the holy city in 1077, making it unsafe for the pilgrim trade, and since the Byzantines were clearly too weak to retake it, it was the Pope's responsibility to return it to Christian control. The Pope's speech electrified the crowd, and the response was immediate. Several prominent nobles pledged themselves to the crusade on the spot, and soon it seemed as if entire countries were on the move, as crusading fever swept Europe. Alexius, on the other hand, was horrified when he heard the news. A crusade was the last thing he wanted. Considering that he had spent a good amount of his time on the throne, pushing western enemies from his borders, the news that the Norman Bohemond was the leader of one of the crusading armies hardly seemed promising. Nor did the idea of an unruly mob of soldiers, as all medieval armies inevitably were, seem especially exciting. The crusaders, he suspected, coming as they did from the barbaric west, would, upon entering the most lavish city in the world, be just as likely to turn their swords to plunder as to fight against the Turks. And even if they could somehow be successfully contained, the recapture of Jerusalem, a city which had, after all, been taken from his empire, was his responsibility, not theirs. The term crusade is somewhat of a misnomer, as it implies a single movement under the control of one individual. Instead, it was made up of multiple armies setting out at different times, slowly making their way to Constantinople, where they planned to meet up. Alexius, who suspected that the destination of Jerusalem was just a ruse to cover up plans to take Constantinople, had to somehow prevent them from linking up before they got to the city. Once there, he could deal with them separately and then ferry them across out of harm's way. The first army that arrived confirmed all of his worst suspicions. He had given orders that the 40,000 French and German peasants that swarmed into imperial territory were to be given a friendly welcome and provided with guides, provisions, and interpreters. Unfortunately, their leader, a fanatical peasant who called himself Peter the Hermit, 
was completely unable to control his followers, and discipline began to break down. Soon enough, a riot started, and the imperial escort was driven off. When the mob reached Belgrade, they burned it, then tried to loot a neighboring city as well. Order was only restored by sending some heavy cavalry against them, reducing Peter's force by some 10,000 men. When they reached Constantinople, they continued to be quite a nuisance, looting the suburbs, stripping the lead off the roofs, and trying to sell it to the annoyed populace. Alexius put them under heavy guard and ferried them all across the Bosphorus, warning Peter not to engage the Turks until more troops arrived. It was good advice, but Peter chose to ignore it, getting involved with the Turks almost immediately. Predictably, his undisciplined rabble was all but wiped out, and Peter slunk back to the city in disgrace. For Alexius, the headache was just beginning as the flower of European chivalry began to arrive. The next few months would see almost 100,000 soldiers pass through Constantinople, and the logistics alone would be a nightmare. The arrival of such a huge number of slightly hostile troops, led by nobles who wanted, at the very least, to carve out of imperial territory kingdoms for themselves, if not take the city, would have been daunting for any ruler. Alexius's reception of them was a masterful blend of friendship and saber-rattling. When each group arrived, they were kept under heavy escort and were directed to pitch their tents outside the walls of the city. Only small groups of unarmed men were allowed in Constantinople, and imperial police watched their every move. As for the leaders themselves, Alexius had a similar strategy. Brought into a palace more splendid than any they had ever seen, they were kept as virtual prisoners, until Alexius personally met with them in his throne room. There they were required to swear an oath, that whatever cities, countries, or forts they might in future subdue, which had in the first place belonged to the Roman Empire, they would hand over to the emperor. After it had been sworn, the mood would instantly become festive. Alexius would shower them with costly gifts, invite them to banquets, and at times even adopt them into the royal family. The tactics worked. All but one of the crusader leaders took the oath, and the one exception swore to protect the life and property of the emperor. There was the occasional trouble. When one noble refused to take the oath, Alexius responded by reducing the food supply to his troops. The affronted crusaders fought a pitched battle, and Alexius had to send out his best soldiers to subdue them. Other crusaders felt looked down upon in the glittering city, and resorted to outrageous acts of bravado. When Baldwin I, who would later become king of Jerusalem, was summoned to the throne room, he brought some of his knights. When Alexius entered, one of the knights, in flagrant violation of every rule of etiquette, to stand in the emperor's presence, had the audacity to sit in his throne and boast that he had never met his match in battle. But eventually every ruffled feather was soothed, every bruised ego had been solved, every leader variously threatened or flattered, then rewarded, and he could watch with a profound sigh of relief as the last transport crossed the Bosphorus. It had been an impressive list of characters. Among many others, there was the son of the King of France, the son of William the Conqueror, and the son of Robert Giscard. Each one of them desperately wanted to be appointed as head of the crusade, and Alexius, with his typical adroitness, had somehow played them off against each other, granting it to none, while simultaneously dangling the possibility that he himself might take the cross and join the crusade. As he watched them go, he had no illusion that the crusaders would serve the cause of the empire or even keep their oaths. It had sprung far too quickly to Bowman's lips in particular to be trusted. But he had done what he could, and now could only sit back and watch what developed. At first, everything went well. The Sultan of Rum, assuming that this new army could be dealt with as easily as Peter's rabble, 
confidently approached them as they besieged his capital of Nicaea. In the pitched battle that followed, however, he found out to his horror that these soldiers were nothing like the disorganized mob he had seen before. His army broke and fled before the terrible frontal assault of the heavily armed crusader knights, and having had enough, he offered them no further resistance. With their city besieged by the crusading army, and no hope of rescue, the citizens of Nicaea knew they couldn't resist. Wanting to avoid a sack, they waited until nightfall, then quietly surrendered to the Byzantines. When the crusaders awoke, it was to find the Byzantine flag flying over Nicaea, and all hopes of looting gone. Feeling angered and betrayed by what they considered typical Byzantine duplicity, they began to grumble openly, and the already strained relations began to sour. The main army refused to trust the Byzantine guides, preferring instead to wander across the Syrian desert fully exposed to the glare of the burning sun, and the few Byzantine regiments remaining with the army, left within a few months, convinced that the expedition would end in disaster. Meanwhile, as Alexius had suspected they would, several nobles split off and despite their oaths to him, began to carve out little kingdoms for themselves out of Byzantine territory. The emperor, for his part, immediately moved to take advantage of the victory. As the crusaders moved off in the direction of Antioch, his army marched along the coast, restoring most of western Asia Minor to Byzantine rule. The next year, news came that the crusaders had, despite their parched exhaustion, somehow reached Antioch and managed to take it, but were now themselves besieged by a much larger Turkish force. The situation was growing daily more desperate, and they begged him to come with all possible speed to their aid. He gathered a large army and set out to relieve Antioch. Halfway there he was met by three knights who had deserted. They brought news that the crusaders were reduced to eating leaves and stews made from the hides and hooves of horses. It was too late, all was now surely lost, and they advised the emperor to return home to Constantinople. Clearly there was nothing now that could be done, and faced with a new rumor that a huge Turkish force was approaching, the emperor prudently struck camp and returned to the capital. But the crusaders had not surrendered, and against all odds had triumphed at Antioch. Enraged that the emperor had apparently left them to their fate, they considered themselves released from their oaths and washed their hands of the Byzantines. Antioch, once the third city of the Roman Empire, lost to the Turks only 20 years before, became the heart of one of the first crusader states. And in what must have been a most bitter blow to Alexius, his old enemy Bohemond became its lord and master. Bohemond stayed behind as the rest of the crusading army left to batter down the walls of Jerusalem, where they captured the city in a most unchristian bloodbath just before the turn of the century. A crusader state in Palestine was something Alexius could live with. As a buffer state, it might even be useful. But crusader control of Antioch, the most important city in Asia Minor, was quite another matter, especially since Bohemond had dropped the pretense of friendship and was now openly hostile to the empire. He sent a modest force to oust the Norman from some ports in northern Syria, and even offered to personally join the crusade if Antioch were returned to him. But the distasteful truth soon dawned that he had lost even nominal control of the crusade. Fortunately for the empire, Bohemond was equally annoying to the Turks, and the next year he was captured and thrown into a Turkish prison. No one bothered to ransom him for three long years, and during that time he convinced himself that Alexius was to blame for all of his problems. The moment he was released, he headed to Europe to finish what his father had started, the conquest of Constantinople. Given a hero's welcome at every stop, he spread the story that Alexius had betrayed the Crusaders, doing as much harm as any to the Byzantine reputation. 
the King of France offered his daughter in marriage, and men flocked to his banner. His plan was identical to that of his father's, capture the port of Durazzo and then take Constantinople. Nothing illustrates the improvements that Alexius had made in the empire more than the second Norman invasion. When he heard the news, his first reaction was to calmly order lunch. Only after he had enjoyed it did he begin to act. He had reason to be confident. The 26 years he had spent on the throne had been put to good use. He took his time approaching the Normans. No sense in a pitched battle without softening them up a bit first. He wrote a letter to several of Bowman's generals, addressing them as if they were in Byzantine pay, and allowed it to fall into Bowman's hands. Then, as the weeks passed without a battle and Norman supplies began to run low, more letters appeared, this time genuine ones, followed by plenty of Byzantine gold. When even his brother-in-law defected, Bohemond realized he had little choice. The most formidable Norman in the east surrendered without Alexius having even drawn a sword. The emperor returned to Constantinople in triumph. The battle had finally broken Bohemond, who died a few years later in obscurity and shame, and the Normans never again threatened the empire. Antioch, however, remained a thorn in his side, and he tried to align the other crusader states against it, but he was growing older and didn't have the energy to pursue it as vigorously as he once would have. Besides, he had other, more pressing enemies to fight. Every year seemed to bring fresh Turkish invasions, and the last years of his reign were spent repelling them. In 1113, 54,000 of them reached Nicaea and tried to take it before they were surprised and annihilated by Alexius. Already in his 60s, and clearly not in good health, it proved to be his last major victory. Five years later, returning home from a minor campaign, he fell seriously ill, and on August 15th, the greatest emperor since Basil II died in his capital. Aside from those first heady years, he had never been widely popular. But if emperors are judged by how they leave the empire at their deaths, then Alexius has to rank with the best of them. His 40 years on the throne had saved the empire and left it incomparably stronger. At his accession, the poisonous atmosphere at court had constantly undercut the stability of the throne. Alexius solved it by relying almost exclusively on his family. And if this nepotism in the long run was almost as bad, it was the fault of his heirs, not his. His task had been nearly impossible. The loss of Anatolia had crippled the empire, and without its recovery there could be no long-term survival. But he was given no tools, other than his native intelligence, with which to achieve this monumental task. The army was in shambles, and his subjects were demoralized. And yet, without a competent army, he managed not just to survive, but flourish in a world surrounded by enemies, fighting only when every other option was exhausted. He was unrivaled as a statesman. Time and time again he induced other nations to do his will, whether it was the Venetians against the Normans, the Pechenegs against the Cumans, the Crusaders against the Turks, or the Turks against the Crusaders. Unable to restore Byzantine arms, he had restored their fortunes instead by replacing actual power with the illusion of power. And therein lay his greatest flaw. Like Bismarck in the 19th century, Alexius was the only one capable of the complex system. Without someone of his caliber to maintain it, the entire house of cards collapsed. Within 80 years, enemies, both Turks and Crusaders, were once again on the doorstep. But this time there was no Alexius to face them. The contrast could not have been greater. Join me next time as I talk about the reign of Isaac Angelus, a man possessing none of Alexius's skills, who became a pawn of the Venetians while the empire paid the price. And old Byzantine suspicions were confirmed, 
as Constantinople itself fell victim to the soldiers of the Fourth Crusade. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, the forgotten Byzantine Empire that rescued Western civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.